I mean, it's great to see drones being used because, you know, that was always an issue. We could never see the roof or, you know, the valley gutter or whatever. And now you've got a drone or you've got a, a camera on the end of a stick. I mean, that's, you know, relatively small thing, the camera on the end of a stick. But wow, what a bit, a little bit of technology just to help you do that job a little bit better. And you don't have to say, oh, I couldn't see the roof. So that's, you know, 25% uh, of the property I couldn't even see. Uh, and therefore you're not helping the customer, you know. Um, yeah, there'll always be the issues of needing x-ray eyes and and what have you but that's the challenge in the job isn't it and there's there's still some fantastic properties out there to, to look at so um yes make sure we've got the tools make sure we've got a strategy to take the surveyors from where they are now to where they need to be and i would like to see more focused cpd somebody saying that's what we that that's the uh, direction of travel that's where we need to take these guys. I, I think at the moment, nobody's 100% certain where they're going. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marion Ellis, and in today's episode, I have a good old chat with the one and only Mr. Chris Rispin. Now retired and previously technical director at Allied Surveyors, Many of you may have met Chris through Blue Box Partners or Sava, or certainly through his work supporting RICS or reading the books he co-authored with Phil Parnham and others. So, yes. welcome to the welcome to the podcast, Chris. Lovely to have you here. And you, and we'll have a good chance to have a chat. Yeah, and um, it's taken me ages to get you on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> Why is I've been that? Avoiding it. Why are you avoiding it? I'm not that bad. Uh, no, no, nothing to do with you. It's just I, I didn't know whether I could add anything, and I've sort of thought about it and thought, well, there are certain things I could go back over and sort of say why we did what we did, because looking at one or two of the things I'm seeing now, I mean, I'm seeing a little bit of reinventing wheels and situations which I think could be avoided if they'd look back and taken the experience. And of course, a lot of the people that used to be involved when I was involved many years ago have now retired also and are not part of the of the scene anymore. So, you know, it's it, it's it's being able to take the thing forward uh, and to repeat, you know, without reinventing the wheel, I think. So um, hence mm. why I thought maybe we could have a little chat. I thought it was just because you're always on holiday in Madeira. <laughs> so I couldn't get you, couldn't Not get just you on. Madeira. Like tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, plenty of places to go. <laughs> Make the so, most of what um, I can. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've got a huge, huge amount of respect for you and the work that you've done. You've been a huge inspiration for me. I had your book that you wrote with um, Phil Parnham back in the day, Residential Property Practice, was it? The red one? Uh, residential Property Appraisal. Appraisal, that's the one. And um, I scribbled all sorts of notes on it. And I think when we when you retired, I, I think I brought the book. And when I highlighted, when I showed you and, and Phil all the bits I'd highlighted, they were Phil's bits. And he thought that was a good thing. I was thinking it's because of bits I don't understand. But but there you go. <laughs> for, for those who uh, give us a bit about your, your career, the background and, and what you've done, because you've done an awful lot of things 
<laughs> okay, well, it, it, I mean, it all started when I was I went to agricultural college and did rural estate management for a year at Siren Sister. I realised that uh, the future there was a bit bleak. The salaries were poor. Um, and then sort of after the first year, moved to Leicester Polytechnic, where I moved into the second year of an urban estate management course. And I, I sort of, it was quite interesting looking at the differences in the courses. The uh, rural one was a diploma, very practical, uh, very good for building construction and one or two other areas like that. The uh, Leicester course was also very good on that because uh, that was an ordinary degree. And I remember the first day we went to the building construction course, the lecturer just dropped on the desk a whole wad of papers and said, right, you need to get to know those by next week. And it was fortunately, it was all the stuff that I'd been doing in the first year of my course at, at Sirencester, which left, I think, many of the others in a little bit of a disadvantage. That taught me something because when I eventually started work in a general practice firm, I worked with a chap who'd been to uh, Reading University, and that was a, an honours course, and that was even more academic, more theoretical. Nothing, nothing wrong with that, but it was just a different tack. And I think one of the things that I've learned as we've gone on is that practical vocational element is so important for surveying. Uh, so I. Um, I'd, I'd been at Leicester Polytechnic, but when I was in, just as I went into, into that course, I thought I really need to get some practical experience. I'd like to have a bit of a job. And I walked into what I thought was one of the best firms in uh, in Doncaster, and it, and it was. And I said, give us a job. Uh, and they did. And so I worked in the holidays. And ultimately, when I left college uh, in 1977, I, uh, I, I worked with them uh, and got some very good training to do my TPC as it was in those days, not the APC. But I stayed with them a couple of years. I did need to get a bit more practical experience on valuation, even though they had a professional department, they had a state agency, commercial, buying, industrial, an option department. You know, they had they were they were a classic general practice firm that was very common in those days. And of course that's not so common uh, nowadays. It's more specialist, and that and that's something that I think is important as we've gone as I've gone through my uh, career. So I went. Uh, I then went to Sheffield City Council, and did compulsory purchase work mainly, slum clearance as it was called in those days, uh, redevelopment of the areas we cleared, and then the the fun part when right to buy came in, and uh, I was there when that started. Um, and of course, at the time I was there, we had um, David Blunkett and Clive Betts. Uh, both mm -hmm. prominent Labour Party members and uh, politicians uh, as, it, as it developed. And of course, they would go on the telly and say, uh, we, we're not doing right to buy. That's not happening. It's not happening in Sheffield. And yet we knew, sat in the Estate Surveyors Department, that we were working every hour that was sent to um, to get the systems ready and ready to go when it started. And of course, it was Margaret Thatcher's day. Uh, so there was quite a lot of political goings on, and uh, and it was a you know the first lesson was that don't always believe what you hear, <laughs> because uh, it certainly wasn't as we were as we were being told. But uh, I, I I stuck that for about another year because um, and then went to another general practice firm in Barnsley, uh, where I was uh, eventually appointed associate partner with my own 
surveying department doing residential mortgages and surveys and other professional type of valuations. But it was just shortly after the miners' strike when everything just went dead. I mean, it was it was an horrendous time. There was hardly any work, and the job came up at uh, Halifax, and um, I thought. Oh yeah, let's let's just see what that's all about. It looks good. Uh, you know, I could do with my my. You know, um, things are hard here. I could do with sort of getting out of it. But I went along just to see what it was all about, really. And when and I was that's there, the Halifax, the Building Society. Yes, yes, yeah. at their head office as um, what was called assistant chief surveyor in those days. And um, <laughs> when I was at the interview, I was asked how would I feel about setting up an in-house valuation service. And I suddenly realised that actually this interview had taken on a bit more importance than I thought because, because I would be out of the job because my main source of work was the Halifax Building Society and I was one of their panel valuers. And I thought, oh, hang on, uh, you, you better start taking an interest and see what you can do. So um, I got that job along with, I think, one or two others. And we were a small team then looking after the mortgages and the 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 portfolio that had, uh, Halifax had built up over the years of millions of properties, you know, 20%, possibly slightly more of the market. So they had a, a, a good proportion of properties. And prior to the chief surveyor, who was there at the time coming, there was no other qualified surveyors uh, other than the premises department surveyors. And so when I first got there, I was handed this wad can't see it on the on the thing, but this wad of files, about a foot high, and there was only three, and um, they were all claims against the Halifax, and uh, because of work to do with mortgages, mortgage valuations, and um, I said, "Oh crumbs, they're they're quite big then," and um, he said, "Yeah, there's plenty more of those, but we need somebody to help us do this because we're just not getting anywhere with them," and I remember looking through them. And within about the first centimetre of the file, I found the problem and saw what was, was going on. And they'd obviously not got the knowledge to know how to deal with some of these claims. Now, some of the problems that they had in those days was the reporting. In those days, it was a fairly open report, free wording. Uh, the surveyor could say basically what they wanted. And um, it was shortly after, this was 1985, it was a couple of years after the Yarni case, which had obviously started the duty of care situation. I think this might have stimulated some of the claims. So what we were seeing was that these reports were fairly open. There was no real structure to them. And it was very difficult for the, um, the mortgage administration in those days to identify what needed to be taken out of the report, because in those days they would put a condition on the mortgage to any works that needed to be done. And because it wasn't sometimes even in any paragraphs or anything like that, I would see that this administrator had taken out the information that they thought was necessary and sent a letter to the customer to saying this is what they needed to do. And quite often this was a source of the problem because they misinterpreted what the surveyor had said because the surveyor's wording maybe was ambiguous, wasn't as clear as it should be. And it was that that brought us to the development of the tick box mortgage valuation, which, of course, was great for the house price index and 
because there they got the boxes. They didn't need to search through the port, report form. You could then create a computer program to deal with it. And it was fantastic from that point of view. That's why we moved on to what we called preferred paragraphs, because, of course, we could then move towards what we needed to see in order to be able to grant the mortgage. And we call them preferred paragraphs because we always said the surveyor had to have the discretion uh, in order to ensure that the circumstances fitted the paragraph and not the other way around, that the paragraph it was made to fit the circumstances. So it was it was a it, it was a revelation really to see what I thought was you know a, a, a surveying industry that was highly professional and and there was some you know a lot of good work being done. So that's um, that's really insightful. And there's a couple of things I just want to want to want to pick up on there. It's interesting. I think for a lot of surveyors to to really look back and have a look and understand how we used to report and why we used to report and to have that you know and I've been in a, a you know similar position with my my claims experience to have that very privileged position to be able to look at cases from from a you know another perspective and less emotionally detached as well I think think helps is to look at that and you get to see the, where the problem happens. And we often think of the problems of the surveyor's not good enough and there's a lot of blame or, you know, they weren't they weren't technically competent and all of those things. But often it is processes and ultimately, you know, well-run businesses are less likely to have claims. And if they do, they're a lot easier to, to deal with because they're less complex. But a well-run business includes the processes that a surveyor has what happens with that report, who reads it. And, and you're right about in, the information and the specific purpose and who's going to interpret it and sort of and and and, and thinking ahead on um, on that. So I think can, that's, can that's I a lot. One, can I just add one thing as well, that although a lot of my life is focused on the problems and the errors, 99.9% of everything that was done was not a problem. It was fine. It was perfect. Well, I say perfect. The, the issue was that we were seeing that 0.001% or whatever of cases that were an issue. And then we were looking at reports because we introduced all sorts of assessment processes, quality assurance and what have you. And when we, and, and when we did that, we were seeing some of the reports where, because we'd seen the mistakes made by others, we were seeing vulnerabilities in other reports. And that was where we were able to then tackle and say, look, if you continue to say that, you could potentially have a problem. And, and the fact is that the vast majority of surveyors don't have a problem to a claim are not in place. And that, I think, is, is you know, the important thing to stress, that this is a small percentage that leads to all sorts of problems. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's looking at it in context. We don't have lots of data that's shared. We don't have numbers. Everybody keeps them very closely guarded. And, you know, there's the the ones you pay out on, the ones that you defend, you know, the ones that are the surveyor's fault and the ones that are admin. There are the ones that you close down commercially because it's just better 
um, more financially viable to do that than to to have it um, you know run along. I found at times it gave me a very jaded view of surveyors, and I had to really remember not everybody is bad. You know, try and look at it look at it in context. But you can get into a a spiral of all doom and gloom. And what I found quite quite liberating actually, and what you're talking about there of looking at risks and vulnerabilities was when I started to look at customer experience, you know, looking at what the problems, what are the risks that something could go wrong, but what could you do about it? And it looks like in the early days, what you've done is engineered these preferred paragraphs to reduce risks, to get consistency, you know, and that, and those kind of things always start off with good intentions, but then you get to a point where it is so over-engineered that it is so restrictive. I mean, I, th- I, th- I mean, you know, sort of much, much later, but I, I remember doing those kind of reports. And if you didn't use the standard paragraph, standard, the preferred paragraph, the computer would say no, and he wouldn't be able to sign it off because there was a full stop in the wrong place. So you'd edited and added a word because you didn't like the grammar even, you know? So I think we've got to be mindful of engineering so we can support ourselves to success and not over-engineering to the point where you disempower a technically competent and professional person to do the job, to do the job properly. Absolutely right. And I mean, the other example of that was, I remember the discussion that we had in Halifax where they wanted external appraisals, desktops. Uh, and whether Halifax was the first to introduce them or not, I'm, I can't remember, but it, it, they would have been others involved. Certainly there was a lot came after that. And I remember the discussion we had and initially this was for the in-house service. We was like, whoa, 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 don't fancy that, you know, because we as professionals would find it very difficult to do that. And what where it had come from had been when there'd been branch managers. And of course, that structure went part of the Halifax's cutbacks and various cost saving measures. Um, the managers occasionally, if somebody came in and said, we just want to borrow 20,000 quid and we think the house is worth about 100,000 smaller figures in those days, that the manager would just say, well, okay, okay. And he would have a drive out and have a look and just sort of say, yes, okay. And because that tier had gone and because there were lots of situations where people wanted very small amounts of, uh, of lending, then they said, well, can't we just do this drive? Just We just want to know the property exists. And we said, yeah, yeah, okay, well, we'll do it, but we've got to have strict criteria. And I think it was a minimum of 50% or a maximum of 50% that was uh, allowed and there were criteria and the report was never to be issued out uh, and all this sort of stuff. It was purely for internal purposes. And of course, you know, 10, 15 years later, there's there's external appraisals, drive-bys on properties where there's 100% lending and they've totally been abused. And that that that's where it got very difficult. And of course, that's what happens over time. Um, and And it was unbelievable where that went. And it's also about the purpose, you know, so for lenders, they're looking at risk, it's their money, they get mm-hmm. to choose how they gamble it if effectively and how they how they decide. Um, and the more that they know about a property that makes them feel comfortable, they can reduce the risk and that allows them to do the desktop, it allows them to do the AVMs, you know, and, and take those those things on. And on the one hand, yeah, that makes sense in a, in a financial sense and a, a business sense. Mm-hmm. But as surveyors, we're approaching it from a different point of view because we're thinking about the person that's living in the home, their safety, what they need to do to maintain it, to keep the roof over their heads. We're thinking about the the value 
portfolio sort of going going ahead. I know in the past, surveyors used to work for lenders and then they all seem to sell those off or leave. And mm. now I think there's a trend for some of them to to go back, isn't there? Well, there seems to be. I mean, what we built at Halifax, uh, and I was already part of the team, really, but, we, you know, we had a very professional team. And, of course, in those days, there was no uh, internet that hadn't really started got going in any meaningful way. But we had it was an exciting time because um, we had all the issues, the, the, the start issues that we we identified PRC. There was eight high luminous cement. There was radon. And there was all these things kept hitting us. Goodness knows what they would have done if there hadn't been any professional staff there. But, but we were able to spend time at that time to be, develop the guidance on how to deal with it. And that was so critical. And there was quite a few of the uh, lenders would get together in meetings and, and and work out what the guidance should be. And uh, some of it was put through the RICS, but of course, you know, uh, with PRC, the BRE was, was a very big component. And in fact, the government got involved with uh, grants and what have you. But we had an infrastructure then in which we could as a lender, we could work, and as surveyors, we could work. And it's it's rather it's interesting that the cladding situation is not that dissimilar to PRC. And that is, you know, the, the infrastructure that needs to be built has to be very similar to what it was, as far as I'm concerned, with, uh, with PRC. Uh, so it was a very interesting time. We And that's where we sort of built this hub uh, and spoke type situation where we created a hub at the centre of uh, Halifax for the in-house team and for the panel team where we were getting information from them. It's very important to get feedback. I used to go out with the regional surveyors. The regional surveyors used to go out with the uh, their teams and they used to get the feedback from the sharp end as to what was going on. And then we would modify our guidance as to as to how we used to deal with it. So that 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 two way approach with with CPD that was meaningful, that was guided towards us moving this new in-house team forward in a way that we needed them to be to support the the work they were doing. Uh, and we we were doing, you know, we were working on that and I, we did that for sort of 15 years or so. And in fact, longer after I, I'd left, they, they still kept going. And I think they still do have a team there, even though they don't have any in-house surveyors anymore. I think they still have a central team uh, working on that. But it, it was a very successful demonstration of how you could get teamwork and get those surveyors working together. Yeah, I uh, I agree. And from, you know, not that I'm a bit younger than you, Chris, but from <laughs> the time that I came in, you know, the the things that, you know, as a as a uh, sort of resi value and surveyor, um, you know, you would look to the Halifax, the Nationwide, the Abbey National Guidance, because you knew technical people had reviewed and understood and given us the, the guidance that we that we needed. Back then, you know, how how did that work with RICS? Because I think people don't understand what RICS is now. There's a question, but, you know, how, how it is now, but how it was back then. Because it, it, what you've sort of explained and, and demonstrated, it was a, a it looks like a, a partnership of, you know, industry, business, professional bodies coming together for the greater good to make this all work. But how how did how did that evolve with with RICS? Because I suppose if surveyors left the the lenders who were sort of funding all of this, then 
that is that how it sort of became more into the RICS realm? Because it wasn't always like that, was it? No. I mean, I remember the, the, the following Yarny and Smith versus Bush, RICS did bring out a pamphlet on the mortgage specification as it became in the Red Book, ultimately. And that and that developed on. Uh, and eventually there was a Red Book. Well, there was a uh, working groups developed. Uh, and one of the responsibilities of a working group that I was on was was for looking at the residential bit of of the Red Book. We weren't we didn't actually write it. We put proposals forward. There was a technical team uh, actually writing it. But I mean, RICS had a number of uh, of involvements that I can't remember back in the eighties, early nineties whether there were any working groups or professional. Certainly, you know, in the early nineties, we had the re- property recession after Myras uh, was, was taken away, and that caused uh, countless problems with claims. Uh, Sorry, say that, not... say that, say that a bit again. So, uh, in the early nineties, there was the property recession, but yes, sir. and there were countless claims uh, because a lot of re- re- uh, repossessions were taken. And it was often found that because the, the value had gone down, that there was a, a, a potential claim. It was nothing like what happened in the 2008, 9, 10, uh, the number of claims there, the confetti letters that came out. But it, it was a bad time for, for everybody, really. And I was seeing it from the inside then uh, as, to, as to how we how we dealt with that. That moved on. And then I remember in the late 90s, I think it was, there were things like raising the roof, the the spy in the house, or spying on what the surveyor was doing. And some things came out of that, and that wasn't very uh, helpful towards the surveying industry either. <clears throat> and as a result, RICS set up SAVA. Uh, in those days, it was the Surveyors and Valuers Accreditation. And that's, I guess that was the forerunner to regulation. And I was involved with that, and we were involved with how could we overcome these issues that you know because the, the feedback on 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 these programs was not good and surveyors were seen as the naughty boys really uh, the residential sector was seen as as, as uh, not a good area so saba developed on and they started assessing reports surveyors didn't like that i mean we'd been doing that at halifax for donkey's years but you know, surveyors didn't like this, this. Somebody looking over their shoulder, looking at their reports, and there was a lot of feedback from that that again didn't go down very well. But from that, I then got involved in the working group, uh, the Residential Surveyors and Valuers Committee, I think it was called, and I think Barry Hall was leading that at the time. Um, God bless his soul. And um, there was a lot of work we did there on guidance for surveyors, and it was it was a good. 10 years or so where we were working on producing guidance all the things radon you name it japanese knotweed whatever and we didn't necessarily write them but we uh, from the feedback that we were getting we instigated that so there was that two-way thing there were, there were you know there were some very good residential directors in those days who, who were given that focus to deal with residential I'm not sure that, that that is there now, but um, anyway, that 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 worked very well. They were always very busy. Resources were always very short, but we did get quite a lot of things done. The working groups did. We did a lot of research on what the customer wanted on things like home buyers reports and, and what have you. Uh, and that was the forerunner and, and resulted in condition ratings and, and, and what right. have you, because it was a traffic light system. 
came from the feedback from the customers to say, well, yeah, but what, is it is it serious what you've told us? How can we tell from, again, the reports? Yeah, how can we reports? make it easy to understand? And yeah, yeah. and and crikey, we could talk about that till, till the cows come home because people still don't don't read reports or understand it. <laughs> no, no. What's, what, what's really interesting there? Um, so a couple of things. For, for those who aren't familiar, the Yarny v. Edwards and Smith v. Bush cases, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can have a read through of, of, of understanding uh, those. Well, and, go on, sorry. There was, a, there was a whole series of cases came out in the 80s, early 90s, which effectively, and this was something that I was, I was very strong about, was that the courts were telling us as surveyors what we had to do. There wasn't the guidance there and the consistency there for the surveyors to say, look, what are my benchmarks? What do I what, what do I need to do? You know, there was yes, there was quite a lot of books. But as I said, there was no there was no Internet. So they needed something. And the number of times the surveyors have said to me, just tell me what I need to do and I'll get on and do it. You know, Absolutely. for everyone. And that's you'd, and that's be, you'd be a Madeira. I mean, you'd be in Madeira all the time if you had a pound for everyone. That was <laughs> possibly. But, but you yeah. know, but you know, uh, you're right. And as as you're talking about this, I'm thinking that's a fascinating time to have all of these different cases come. For, you know, and, and I can see from the claims experience, the early claims experience you had, being able to sort of have a you know zoom out and have an overview of how these things are happening, and and you've got. You know, surveyors who are trying to do their best, but there there aren't the rules, there aren't the guidance to say the way that things need to be done or what's best practice. Or now we've discovered some new defect technology, whatever it is, how we how we use it so it so there's consistency, and that obviously then helps with you know court cases because of what an average surveyor would do on a wet Tuesday at Margate and 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 those things. Um, But what it also shows that as a surveying profession businesses, surveyors, all at some level invested their time and energy to make sure we all get this right or we're all having that discussion. And you're right, that then leads into the creation of, you know, regulation. And and I can see sort of people's hesitation over audits and having their work, you know, criticised. But how, you know, how do you know if you're good enough you know, and everybody should be asking that for their clients, not just because they're, you know, they're, they're fearful of of being sued. But the, it seemed to be that sort of, I, I sort of feel like, even though I wasn't there, you know, reminiscing that, you know, the good old days, we had all this stuff, everyone was pitching in together, getting stuff done, because it, it needed to be. And perhaps it wasn't as, as rosy as that. I'm sure it wasn't. But what I see now, sort of my generation, is there hasn't been that you know, there's professional groups or whatever have have come and gone. There isn't that sort of uh, technical interest, that that investment in, in in doing that, and and that's something I think RICS and obviously we've got these PGP groups and things being set up and sort of coming back to that because it's so important that we as a profession set ourselves up for success. And on the one hand, I agree. You know, it's a tell me what you want me to do, but also. These are qualified professionals, mm-hmm. you know, who can think for themselves. And there's a bit of responsibility on both parts, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. But then, of course, if you're a busy professional, having the time to go and search, as you would have to necessarily, all the places, you know, it's like the Red Book where you know, you go through it and it says, oh, now go and look at the IVS. Well, 
if I'm a busy professional, I don't want to have to go somewhere else and look at the international valuation standard. I want to have it all there in front of me and a quick reference to say, this is what I need to do and this is what I need to go on and do it. You know, it's like I, I often compare the building regs and the approved documents. The building regs are very minimal standards, you know, very minimal wording. But the approved documents, it's all there. It's the it's the benchmark. You know, OK, you don't have to do it exactly as the approved documents said, but that is your benchmark to what you can do. And if we look back at property since the approved documents came out, if you're surveying it, you've got a benchmark to what the construction is supposed to be like. If you mm -hmm. go back to older property, the benchmarks aren't quite as clear and therefore you need to be a bit more specialised in, in, in what you do and where you get your information. And, and I think that's where, if you like, they need the support and that, that could come from a book, it could come from the internet. But it is sometimes, I mean, it comes from the hub where people put things on. So I've seen this. I've never seen this before. And, you know, and I, I look at it and think, no, neither have I. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and it, it's like, OK, that's interesting. It's not in any, that's not in any approved document. And so there'll always be things that pop up where you need a little bit of reference, if you like. But there are a lot of areas where you can say, well, OK, yeah, we can cover that because there are the approved documents or there's some standard guidance or, or whatever. But the, with property, it's very different. You know, the, the talk that you can get artificial intelligence to deal with it. I mean, I was involved in writing the standard for the automated valuation model. So that's a form of AI. But I know the shortcomings of the AVMs. And, I, you know, I'll never forget one particular case where we were dealing with a semi-detached house. It had been extended a bit. And there was a question about it. I think the fee had been 150 quid. A claim came through because it was taken into possession. It wouldn't sell. Um, it wouldn't sell at the price uh, or the valuation that had been put on it. And the expert came up with a comparable of a similar semi-detached house, but it wasn't quite the same. It hadn't got the extensions. If you'd done an AVM on it, it wouldn't have shown the extensions on, on the new house. But the house that was used as the prime example, there'd been a, a suicide and that house had a, a, a real stigma and the local estate agents knew it just wouldn't sell for the price. And for using it as an expert and saying this is the comparable was was very wrong. And eventually, after months, the claimant lender decided, oh, we won't. We won't pursue it. We'll just walk away and we'll let you go. No apology. Oh, and you will settle your own costs. And the insurers, you know, we're a bit iffy about that but they said well uh, yeah let's just get rid of it Ten thousand quid and for a 150 pound fee and the value had done nothing wrong and and it, it's, it's those sort of things where you say what can we learn from that now clearly we can learn to be better experts and clearly we can also learn how to how to get the comparable information and getting all that information together and getting all that done was was, was a great area for what we did and that was just one very small example of what we needed to do in order to progress this troop of surveyors from being able to do make mistakes, if you like, which everybody does, to getting them into a, a position where they could sleep at night. They could say, you know, because I've done what I think is right and you've, you've proven to me what I need to do, I can I can go home at night and think I've I've done a good job today. Yeah, occasionally you'll make a mistake, and okay, that's what insurance is all about for those.
But that's what our, our certainly when we got to blue box time, that's what we were trying to do was to say, let's let's try and help the surveyors sleep at nights by um, helping them with what they're doing. And it wasn't trying to pick fault. It was trying to just say, we've seen some faults. Let's let's try and make sure that those those don't occur. So, you know, we spent a lot of time working on that. And in addition to that, we used some of the we looked at what was happening in America, Canada, Australia, and what sort of guidance they had and, and what, what their appraisers as some of the was and was this for residential survey or red book evaluation, or was this across the board? It was it was it was really, yes, it was trying to work out whether the home buyer report was the right model. And I know there's a talk, you know, about whether you can have different levels of survey. And I think you can because of the different types of property. I think you have to choose which type of survey you do, for which type of property and give the best advice on that. But but it was yes, it was partly that It was also partly for the home condition report as to what when when we were looking for the home inspectors as to what sort of entry level report could be done to match the number of surveyors we had and to match the expertise and to add value you know what can you do at that very early stage without having to demolish half the property to see what's going on and what detail can you give on conditions so hence the traffic light situation came there yeah. as well so we, um, we did a lot of research into what was going on around the world to see if we could learn anything from that and i've got to say the um the institutes in canada and uh, America were very, very useful. You mentioned Blue Box, which I'll ask you about um, uh, in a second. But I was thinking of something else and then I've forgotten. Uh, <laughs> hips. <laughs> I'm oh, going yes. about hips. Yes. So Because that was the other thing you, you mentioned, home information pack. So yes. you were... Um, so you were at Halifax. You you how did you leave Halifax? Is that where you went to Blue Box then or no, no. I, allied, um, you were at Allied, weren't you? Yes. I I left Halifax in two thousand um and went to Allied as their technical director. Now Allied were a very different practice. I mean, they were in the private sector, obviously. They were a network of small individual practices doing a, a wide range of residential valuation and survey work not just mortgage valuations, um, you know, the inheritance tax type valuations, matrimonial disputes, you name it, Charity Act, uh, the whole the whole lot. So it, it was a broader scope and it was it was very and a very interesting time. And not long after I'd gone there, the home information packs came in and the conveyancing factories were being set up. And having been part of SAVA, I then got on to a committee at RICS uh, to produce the home condition report, which was done in association with the office of the deputy prime minister. And that was a fascinating time. A swim lanes comes to mind, uh, project management, and got to get these swim lanes right. So you've got to hit your targets in how we're producing all this lot. And we had interesting debates about what level of report uh, should be in there, uh, whether there should be evaluation in there, and of course, Scotland went a slightly different way. They didn't at the time because uh, it was all going to be one. But the debates were there and then long and difficult debates were had about what, what should be achieved. But we eventually got um, to the home condition report. Rightly or wrongly, you know, I can I can see issues with it. I can see positives with it. It certainly, in my view, did more than a mortgage valuation uh, and it gave the customer more. 
but it maybe in some cases didn't go far enough. And that, I think that's one of the main criticisms with it. But the interesting thing was you could apply more benchmarks to it. And therefore, the surveyor had more information about what needed to be achieved. And I think that helped and that would have reduced the vulnerability to certain types of claim. So, yeah, that was, I mean, that was a great area where a lot of the, the surveyors, technical directors got together, got the heads around the table and debated what needed to be done. There was a strategy. Then we had the training of home inspectors, the training of domestic energy assessors, you know, the whole gambit uh, of, of going through. And then, of course, it all got pulled, uh, <laughs> which, which, um... which was which was so disheartening for lots of people. It was financially difficult for many because they'd invested and, you know, changed their businesses and yeah, yeah. all of those things. But just the the potential to do something different and better and evolved. And then it's just pulled. And of course, now is where. As we're talking, you know, there's more talk about upfront information. We've got 20 odd years of technology and yes. data. That's even before you start to think about all the AI, you know, potential possibilities. You know, as we, you know, as we're here today, there, you know, there are mortgage lenders out there who've been working with land registry for a number of years to the point where, you know, going back to thinking about risk, that there's enough information that they know about the property that they can almost sort of pre-approve a property for mortgage, the property, not the person, as it goes up for sale, you know, with a, with mm. an agent, you yes. know, and there's certainly things on a digital front that can be improved. You know, as somebody goes to buy a house, I think they have to present their ID five times, <laughs> you know, and that's where things like open data um, and, you know, and, and, and sharing things can make a huge difference to, not just, you know, how easy is it to buy and sell a house, but um, for certainty and security and fraud and, you know, all sorts of all sorts of different things. I've started to learn more about what it means to have upfront information as a as a survey and then property logbooks. And the conversations are the same, Chris, as 20 mm. years ago, you know, as how how do um, you know, will the survey expire? What will happen? And and it comes back to this, how we can learn from the past, you know, and, you know, what have we learned, where are we are now and, and how we can move move forward. But there doesn't seem to be anywhere. I mean, the government's written a, a paper. I'll pop a link in the show notes as to the background to HIPS, but it doesn't have all of the, the thinking and thoughts of, of surveyors. You know, I think that kind of, that 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 history and that dialogue is really important that we understand why we made decisions rightly or wrongly, but based with the information that we had at the time, um, so that we can understand going forward. There was um, somebody posted in the hub and uh, we've got a little blue box WhatsApp and I asked a question and none of us could work it out. But I think something like in in uh, 1996, RICS changed the, the use of, instead of saying full structural survey to building survey or, or whatever, yeah. And um, we were trying to think, well, why was that? And there was a, there's a legal case around it. We think Apparently, none of us yeah. can, none of us can can find. But that's no. important <laughs> today because as we sort of look at you know when I look at people's websites, you know it says you know you know a, a level three formerly known as a full structural survey. Well, it's not at all. It's to do with component parts being 
ripped apart and understanding and dismantling, you know, and so we're using language that we don't fully, uh, fully understand. So I think it's quite interesting that we, that we were able to shine a light back on that, but I don't know how we do it. Well, I mean, it's interesting because structural surveys are is still used as a term by structural engineers, and they mm. can probably do that because that's probably what they do. The question is, is in building survey, you do consider the structure, you do consider how it's put together, you know, but okay, we've decided it's a building survey. So fair enough. But it's context and how surveyors, how surveyors use it. And clients are thinking, well, I want the best and the full, you know, and that's what this look, looks like, but it's where we yeah. can get caught short. And that's why this look, it's like I want to, it's like I want to sort of flip your head open and pull all the, well, maybe not that, that sounds a bit rough. Maybe a bit like Harry <laughs> Potter where he pulls the memories out, you know, with his little, <clears throat> little wand yeah. know, and say, and say yeah, well, those, those things. Don't come to me for memory. <laughs> I struggle. <laughs> um, but I mean, but it's, I mean, the, the, the problem we've got is that if surveyors can't agree among themselves what a building survey is, then how on earth can we get that message across to a customer? And that's and that's something that I think we've, we've got to get consistency on. Yes, the, the standards now that have been written and therefore that that's a starting point as to what we should be looking at. If we don't agree with it, then somebody very quickly has got to say, hang on a minute, we've got to change all this. Well, I, I'm not sure it needs changing radically. There may be the odd word here and there. And a but few but it's, having, it's having confidence, though. If you're confident and clear, you can communicate anything out. And if we don't know the differences between the levels and what kind of property and and it all of that just hesitation and uncertainty gets gets out. Can I ask you about you know the, like the red book? So for non-valuers, uh, this is the valuation guidelines and they're well be careful there. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, can you tell me about the red book, <laughs> Chris? Well, I mean they're called standards, and so the, the, you know they are standards, and there are standards there. The, the but there are guidelines in them uh and guidelines how to do things you know the commentary on the market uh on, on market value is a guideline as how to achieve market value now the fact that that commentary is mainly in the international valuation standards is an interesting thing there are some elements of that in in the red book but i think if they want it to be purely a standards document they've got a long way to go if they want it to be a valuation and guideline document then Again, there are things it, it, it needs to have in, in the guidance area. Um, but even calling it, you know, standards, guidelines, yeah, you know, and going back to what we said earlier, surveyor just wants to know what they need to do yes, and where quite. to go, you know, and it's, yeah. you know, making things simpler and clearer is just kinder to, to, to everyone. But I know it's not that straightforward. It is complex. And, and when you're looking at, valuation globally you know as a as our ICS does as a as an organization it's very different in different parts of the parts of the world you know so but we've got to again it's that zooming out zooming in why do we do it this way why is this important and again about the context because there's very specific sections on mortgage lending and secured lending isn't there and for good reason I mean those were created because of the case law because we were being told how we should do our job, we felt, well, no, actually, we'll tell you how we we will we can do our job. Uh, and so, therefore, the devil's in the detail, really, uh, in, in that. And I think it's very important that if, if there's ambiguity, if it's principle-based, then, as a barrister once said to me, they love that. 
because that means they can argue anything in court. But we shouldn't have to go to court. You know, we should we should be setting the benchmarks for the surveyors so that they and the valuers and, and of course it is valuers, the Red Book is is valuers. There's very, very there's nothing in there for quantity surveyors, land surveyors or or whatever. It's all valuation of, of assets. So I don't know what I don't know what the other factions of the of the RSES do, but so but it's very I think it's very important that we that we do keep the detail. Now whether that's in a separate guidance note or whether it's in the red book, I don't really mind as long as it's all there. Mm. Um and that the surveyor and the valuer understands what it is that they they've got to do. And that's just simple stuff, really. Just you know, point it out and then do it because then you've got a measure against which you work. And you know, you've got a target, you've got a measure, whatever you call it, it's there. And if you've done it wrong, then it's clearly that you've done it wrong. And and that is something that we've had to fight against. 40 years because it hasn't always been that clear now it can't be 100 percent clear because all properties differ and, and and what have you but the the purpose or uh, of evaluation and the process you go through should be very similar and that there shouldn't really be many questions about that and i and i often say to people who are non-valuers to have a attend a webinar get your head around a bit of it because it is quite a specialist um, subject but the RICS do run some red book compliance workshops it's formal CPD it's aimed at valuers but it is worth attending if you run your own business if you're you don't have those standards and things because it can just give you an idea of the the framework I'll pop a link you'll have to check that it's up to date because they do they run them regularly but it's a you know, it's, it's a really insightful thing to to do. And again, you know, when you look at sort of standards and regulations and the work that we have to do, the rules that we have to follow now, it's important to understand why we've got them. We're not just doing it to, you know, to make surveyors' lives difficult. And we're not just doing it to cover our backside because there were claims. It's been shaping it so that surveyors can be supported for success yeah. You know, and and we can hold our own against lawyers and, and things like that. And and that's a, a worry in itself, you know, just touching on AI is that lawyers will use AI to read through documents, look for gaps, and that'll start to form their their case. Yes, you know, so there absolutely. needs to be some real, real strides in um, in some of that. Um, can I ask you about the blue box days and how blue box formed? Big smile on your face as you say that. <laughs> yeah. As you as I say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Blue Box was was formed out of the working parties uh, with uh, the office of the deputy prime minister. Uh, we were looking at a chart one day, and I think the assessment and monitoring area there were going to be a series of companies that would do monitoring and assessment of home inspectors, and it was a blue box. And I said, "Ooh, that's an opportunity. I wouldn't mind doing that." And hence we created Blue Box. And of course, we never at the time we never got to be that Blue Box in that chart because it all fell apart. But then we just created our training area with uh, myself and Phil mainly, and we were part of Allied Surveyors initially. And then when Allied Surveyors had a few problems, we bought the company out, and and then we went on. Phil Phil did an awful lot of training, and and those days, of course, there was the domestic energy assessor training that was going on. 
And I was doing, because there were a lot of claims, I was acting for quite a few solicitors, uh, defendant solicitors, looking at the claims that had come through, just giving a preliminary advice based on what I could find on things like Right Move and Quest and what have you, as to whether there was any justification in the case. And quite often we found that there was nothing. So therefore they got something they could defend. And of course, that was because of course, a lot of the letters were confetti letters and, and were not based on anything other than possibly a spurious AVM because it hadn't taken into account things like modifications to the property because it couldn't, it's not, hadn't got the data. And when um, we, just when we say confetti letters, for those who don't know, this is where lawyers would notice the date of a, of a property, um, you know, that has been repossessed or whatever. They'd have half a postcode and they would send a, I think it's a pre-action protocol letter in to say, we might sue you in the future. So we're just getting this in. And they would come in so regularly yeah. that it was like confetti. But yeah. 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 In, horrible. In their, horrible. In their thousands. An awful, awful time. So as, as Blue Box, we went on from that. I did also quite a bit of work with Quest. We worked with Rightmove at the time. And, and with Quest, we were looking at modelling, uh, not AVMs. It was it was other work, modelling systems that would help uh, be a tool to valuers and help them with the um, with tablets or whatever. And so there was quite a lot of background work we were doing we doing on that. And and with Rightmove. Uh, Blue Bots were a, re- a reseller to the smaller practices uh, of the right move product. And I mean, they they found that, you know, that was their introduction to it. And in those days, that was the first anybody knew about all that computer information and data on the houses. And it, it allowed the smaller practices to compete with the larger corporates because the larger corporates obviously had all all the data. But the smaller ones just had what they'd seen. And therefore, you know, they were getting the um, land registry data eventually. But it was in the early days uh, we were doing that. So um, from that, we looked at quite a lot of modelling and we did quite a lot of risk assessment. So because we got all that data, we could actually I set up various models looking at what, what reports were coming in and the valuations that were coming in. And we were able to identify the outliers, so the anomalies, and say, oh, that one doesn't look right. And now if I was able to sample in a more focused way, I mean, how the heck do you sample over a thousand instructions a month or whatever, the 10,000 instructions a month or, or whatever. But if you had some modeling like that, you could focus in and you could spot trends and spot certain values because they were very vulnerable to fraud in those days. And it was, you know, and still are. It was a very, very difficult time because the modeling was only just beginning. And, and those that were committing fraud hadn't realized that we got the, the functionality to be able to spot right. a little bit of what was going on. So that that was a, a big thing we did and then of course we we just we tended to move more on to training and then we moved on to developing because we realized there was a shortage of surveyors although we'd realized it for donkey's years there'd been a shortage of surveyors but we created with sava uh, sava had been bought out by them by um nes what have you we then moved on to developing the course so phil and i and carrie carrie de silva wrote the various elements of the course so that you know, we could train surveyors. And I mean, they've trained since then hundreds, if not thousands of surveyors. So, and they're therefore providing uh, the new supply of residential um, associate members of the RICS. 
that that's quite a legacy, Chris. You know, is um, there'll be people listening to this thinking, bloody hell, he's he's done all sorts of stuff. He was there at the right time and yeah. and mm-hmm. fought our corner and involved in these things and and then to create, you know, um, a route for surveyors to get qualified and started in their career. That's quite some legacy. What what are you most proud of in your career? <laughs> I think it's when somebody comes up to me and say thank you, you know, for what what you did, and I think, and I think obviously the development of the uh, helping Sava with the, their course was a, a big a big thing. But I think developing helping develop the in-house valuation service, and I've never been just one person doing it. I've always been part of a team. But you know, helping that in-house valuation service, you know, we had some really good years, uh, maybe ten years or so, uh, when we did that. And, um, you know, that, that's a, a good time. But I've been very lucky, as you say, timing. I've been in the right place at the right time for lots of things. And um, But you made I, the most of those opportunities, though. You know, we're, we're all yeah. in the right place at the right time for, for lots of things. But you, you yeah. made the, the most of those and made that difference. And yeah. a lot of us are very grateful for that. <laughs> Can I ask you then, because um, it'd be quite easy you know, seeing all these claims and just looking at the state of quality and things like that now to be quite jaded and negative about where the profession's heading as you as you head off in your uh, retirement. What what gives you hope for the future of surveying? What are you hopeful for? Well, I, 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 sticking to the knitting, really, you know, it's it's it, it, it's hopefully that throughout the home buying process, that from that will come the genuine support for the customer to provide them with the information that they really need when they buy a house. We know from some of the issues that have been with new houses that it's not just the older houses where they need the information. Um, but being able to provide that, I think, is 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 where the surveyor's residential surveyor's route has to be. And I think that's using all the new technology, yeah, there will be AI as there is now, really, with AVMs. But as long as we use that as tools and we know what we're doing, I mean, it's great to see drones being used because, you know, that was always an issue. We could never see the roof of, you know, the valley gutter or whatever. And now you've got a drone or you've got a, a camera on the end of a stick. I mean, that's, you know, relatively small thing, the camera on the end of a stick. But wow, what a bit, a little bit of technology just to help you do that job a little bit better. And you don't have to say, oh, I couldn't see the roof. So that's, you know, uh, 25% of the property I couldn't even see. Uh, And therefore you're not helping the customer, you know. Um, Yeah, there'll always be the issues of needing X-ray eyes and uh, and what have you, but that's the challenge in the job, isn't it? And there's there's still some fantastic properties out there to, to look at. So... Um, yes, make sure we've got the tools, make sure we've got a strategy to take the surveyors from where they are now to where they need to be. And I would like to see more focused CPD, somebody saying that's what we that that's the uh, direction of travel. That's where we need to take these guys. I, I think at the moment, nobody's 100 percent certain where they're going. Uh, and clearly the home buying group have got a very important function. And if they can pull off home condition reports or something similar, that that would be a great step forward. Uh, I know there'll be a lot of opposition saying that's an added cost and all the rest of it. But if you spend, it comes down to per- pounds, yeah, it comes down to purpose, though, isn't it? 
And, you know, the purpose is, isn't really to do things quicker, faster, using digital and save more money. You know, that's that's one part of it. That's a benefit almost. The purpose, the purpose is to help people live in their homes safely with a roof over their head, for surveyors to know what they do and how they help and to use the tools, the gadgets, because we all have a gadget, you know, all of these things to help us be better. And that's where we we can enjoy our work and get meaning from it and do a good job. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big area of services, which has always been an issue. It's an area where we just say, look, we can't do that. You know, that's an area where we haven't got the skills. We haven't got the time. Well, that's where, see, that's where teamwork and collaboration and things come in, you know, and surveyors have often worked in silo on their own, but maybe it is a time, you know, to have a, to work with a team of sparkies and gas fitters and, and whatever, you know, well, it's, it's that, it's that coming together, but, and rethinking how we do these things, but just, you know, from what you've talked about in your career, it's sort of very progressive moving forwards. What's the next thing? What can we do? And you're right. Yeah, I, I think, think it's that direction, isn't it? Well, I think with the services, I think there can be a lot of criteria created. And again, if you like, uh, uh, the start of uh, um, artificial intelligence, where you can say, well, okay, you've got a service contract. I mean, with the problem with services is the mechanical. So they could fail at any time. So it's only a point in time thing that you can do. But if you've got a, a good history for that gas boiler or whatever it is, then that's a, a big tick in a checklist of what of what you can say. And I think as long as we assess the scope of what we can do, yes, we can do a visual inspection. Yes, we can see there's corrosion or there's leakage or things like that around certain radiators uh, and what have you. Uh, and again, that's helpful. Yes, and I think we should turn on a shower and see whether the pressure's there that the thing comes. And, and yeah, okay, how do we measure pressure? Well, yeah, that's another interesting debate, one that I've been part of many, many times before. And I think there are ways that we can achieve it in this day and age to say, yeah, I mean, you know, if you came to our house and you put one shower on, you would find out that it only works when you put the other shower on because there's an <laughs> airlock in it somewhere. Uh, you know, um, but if I was a buyer of the house, I'd want to know that. Yeah. <laughs> And it's simple things like that that people want to know. So I think there's lots of scope, it, it, but I don't want to be part of the meetings where they discuss it. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you've 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 done your time, and and I've just got thoughts now of all of these jobs and quirks that surveyors have in their homes now <laughs> that we don't tell anyone about. Oh, no, Chris, it's but... absolutely been amazing to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a privilege. Thank yeah, you very much too. for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. If you're new to the Surveyor Hub, do check out some of our past recordings. And when you're ready, leave a review on Google or Apple iTunes, or you can buy me a coffee. All the links are in the show notes. And if you want to find out more about how working with me can support your surveying business journey, please do drop me a message or take a look at the many free resources for surveyors and small businesses at lovesurveying.com. 